Hello, I'm Abigail James. Welcome to Knowing Me, Glowing You, the podcast that celebrates life's unique journeys. I want to inspire you wherever you are in your life, whether that be aging, career, family, or more internal goals of self-discovery. Each week, I will be chatting to different experts, shining a light on their knowledge and own unique journeys. Today, I'm talking to Vanessa Williams. It was a reality check like I never predicted at all. And 20 years old to face hate and death threats because of the color of my skin and to have such acceptance on one side for the change and the history that it made and such, I would say, resistance and outrage from people that were still stuck in their racist judgment. So it made me grow up really, really fast as a 20-year-old. Vanessa Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Do you know what? When I heard that you were here and I was asked, would you like to have Vanessa as a guest? I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> yes. Oh. So I know you mostly from Ugly Betty and Desperate Housewives. Mm-hmm. And that's where I probably know your face and your voice from. I always like to ask my guests in a nutshell, which I know with your life and career is going to be so tricky. But just explain to my guests who Vanessa Williams is. Okay. Almost 60 years old uh, in a few months. So I'll start from the beginning. Born and bred in New York. When I was 20 years old, I was a junior at Syracuse University, majoring in musical theater. Became famous overnight as the first Black Miss America in 1983. From there, through many trials and tribulations and effort and talent, became a recording artist, an actress, had a huge hit called Save the Best for Last that got me on top of the pops back in the day, but also 11 Grammy nominations, went on to star on Broadway. My first Tony nomination was Into the Woods as the Witch and onto television and three Emmy nominations for Wilhelmina Slater and Ugly Betty. After that, did a show called Desperate Housewives for two seasons before that ended. I did a show called 666 Park Avenue. Just returned to Broadway in POTUS, which just closed two weeks ago. Proud mother of four children, three girls, one boy, and a proud grandmother of a grandson who is eight months. Amazing. So I picked up the grandmother thing on your Instagram. I was having a look through this morning. I was like, oh, That's amazing. That next generation. There's so much there that we could talk about, right? Maybe let's go back to the early years. The Miss America thing, being the first Mm African-American, is insane. Mm -hmm. And actually, when we think of, well, I say where the world has progressed, there's obviously progress and regression. Was it something on your wish list? I mean, how did that even come about to be putting yourself forward for that? It wasn't on my wish list at all. It was happenstance. Your freshman year at uni, you were, it was a study year. So you had to study piano and, you know, set design and voice and acting. Your sophomore year, you were allowed to perform. And I was performing. I did uh, a show called Golden Apple. I did a musical review called Swinging on a Star. Then I did one called Heart and Soul. So I was performing all throughout the year. And the local pageant at Syracuse 
looks for their talent at the university because that's where people are good and studying what they do well. So I had been asked a couple of times, would I be interested in being involved in the pageant? I kept saying, no, no, no. I was cast in a production of Cyrano de Bergerac in April, end of the school year, and it was canceled. And I had April free. And I said to my mom, do you think I should do this pageant? She said, is there scholarship money? And I said, yeah, yeah. She said, well, then do it. And I ended up winning Syracuse in April, went to the States in July, sang the same song from my performance class. My friend played piano for me, one in July, New York State, and one Miss America that September, six years after I even considered being a part of that system. So it was a whirlwind, as you said. I assume being from New York in 1983, 20 years after the civil rights movement in the 60s, mm. I thought the world had progressed and the United States had progressed. Coming from a very diverse state like New York or area like I had grown up in, it was a reality check like I never predicted at all. And 20 years old to face hate and death threats because of the color of my skin and to have such acceptance on one side for the change and the history that it made and such I would say resistance and outrage from people that were still stuck in their racist judgment. So it made me grow up really, really fast as a 20-year-old. And I'm guessing with all of that, there was obviously the jubilation and excitement, but just this huge reality check, as you said. How did you deal with that emotionally? It wasn't easy to deal with that. A, because I was thrown into a situation that I never really prepared for because I didn't realize that the world had not progressed as much as my own surroundings had. Thank God I had two parents that they were amazingly supportive, very practical and a sound base for me to always look for to guidance and support. A great comedian that supported me as well, a family and friends. And knowing that it was about me, and what I had to offer. At 20 years old, you absorb everything and you take everything personally. I remember when I first won and I was at the Plaza Hotel about to do my New York press conference and kind of introduce myself as a Miss America and watching The Tonight Show, which was the big nighttime show and Johnny Carson saying, oh, by the way, did you hear that we have the first black Miss America well, of course, Mr. T was one of the judges. And I was like, wow. Again, it's like, okay, that hurt my feelings. And are we really that prejudiced still? So all those little kind of microaggressions were something that I never thought that I'd have to deal with. And particularly growing up and knowing all of the, the history of the South and having to go there to represent Miss America and having so much resistance that I knew I could anticipate. My whole motive was to not only blow away every stereotype that they think they would see, but have them in the palm of my hands with my intellect, with my talent, with my my personality. And that was kind of my goal. You know, when 1983, 60s actually was not that far away. It was within my lifetime because I was born in 63, but you know, it was when my parents decided to start a family and raise their children with all that tumult. So to have their child 
create history, but also have to still deal with the stuff Mm -hmm. that they had to hopefully thought would disappear must have been scary for them because the death threats, they did have to shelter me from the fact that I was on the road as Miss America and letters would be come to the house. There was no internet back then. So letters would come to the house, phone calls would be made because back then you had a phone book and our number was listed and they had a whole box for the FBI. So God forbid anything happened to me, they would have the evidence of all all the threats. That's just next level of something to deal with as a 20-year-old, but as a family. I mean, I'm just putting myself, me as a mother, into your parents' shoes as well. You wouldn't wish that stress and, and all of that for your children, would you? As you're talking through this, I can't help but also feel that you've had that extra level of judgment. Because I think as women and putting yourself out there for a pageant, it is about looks and physique and talent. And you've had that extra layer of judgment as well, which just, you know, a high five to the strength of character dealing with that. And I know from doing my research on you, there's another layer to that process, isn't it? That I know that a period of time in, you had that title taken away from you. Well, I resigned, but yes. Did the, you? The threat of the title taken away. Okay. I did resigned, you, yeah. Did you? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So that was obviously another process mm-hmm. that you've kind of been through and coming out the other side. 21. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I'd love to delve into your singing career. I would just love to know how that part of your career took off. It was a long time coming. Because in 1984, when I resigned after 10 months and almost literally two more weeks of appearances, after uh, some pictures came out of me, which were not authorized, and I decided to sue against a huge corporation. And I said, you know what? I'm done. Let me move on with my life. So to be taken seriously, when we talk about judgment, which you mentioned, which is part of my whole story, you're going to be judged by everyone for the rest of your life. Whether you're rich, you're poor, you're glamorous, you're not, you're capable. That's what happens when you go to go in for a job. That's what happens when you're in front of somebody for an audition. That's what happens in life. When you walk into a store, people judge you. So you have to get used to that. But For me, at 21 years old, I was a beauty queen, which negates any kind of intellect you really have. (laughs) And then talent, there's judging, well, is she really talented or is it just going to be a flash in the pan? And also being a scandalized person to try to be in an industry where people are already judging you. So it negated talent, it negated intellect, and wanting a fair shot was not possible. So I had to find the helpful people in my life that believed in me and knew what I actually could do. I ended up, my publicist who came in to kind of help me with my resignation speech and guide me through all of that transition out of Miss America, I ended up dating and falling in love. And uh, I ended up marrying my publicist who then became a manager. He knew who I really was and knew my real talent. So the next step was, to take the frustration that I was having from not being able to get parts because people would just want to see me in the room to say, oh my God, I auditioned Vanessa Williams. Oh, she came in to see me. 
not really getting a fair shot because of all that judgment coming in the door. So I did lots of television, small parts on sitcoms and game shows, but getting real opportunities were not happening as an actress. My biggest, probably did not disappoint me, but my kind of lesson in life at the time, this was in 1984 or five to audition for Tommy Toon for a musical called My One and Only. And Tommy Toon was a huge star, big Broadway star, but also a a great uh, singer, dancer, choreographer. So he was working with Twiggy, the famous model. So they had a run of a year in a show called My One and Only, and they wanted to replace Twiggy. So I went in, learned all the tap, learned all the Gershwin musical songs, did the audition. Mike Nichols was the director, who's a famous director. Mike was a great fan, but also one of those helpful people that believed in me. I came in, nailed the audition, nailed the music and the dance, left, gave me a big thumbs up as I left. And then I never got a call and I knew that I didn't get the role. Cut to in 2000, I think it was either 2008 or nine, there was an opening of West Side Story on Broadway and I saw him at open night. And uh, I was Mike, good to see you. And we were talking about, oh my God, it's been years. He said, do you remember what happened? You, that, you know what really happened? I said, no, tell me. He said, you came in, auditioned, did a great job. Lee Gershwin, who is Ira Gershwin, of course, the Gershwin brothers, Ira's widow, was head of the estate uh, of the music. And he looked back at her and said, wasn't she terrific? He left. The phone rang when he got to the bottom of the stairs backstage And she's on the phone and she said, over my dead body will that whore be in my show. Wow. So after hearing that, after so many years, I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea. Not only the judgment, but how hard it really was for me. Thank God I believed in myself and I knew my talent. And I guess I was naive or hopeful. I had so much faith that I knew that I'd get an opportunity to show my talent eventually. But I had no idea the amount of obstacles that were really stacked against me. So after being frustrated with not getting my acting jobs, it was my husband said, you know, if you really want to have control over your career, you should record because you can record what you want, do your own videos and do what image you want and really kind of be able to control your music, which will allow people to see what you want them to see. Getting the right deal was another issue, but finally got a great deal with Ed Eckstein, who was starting a new label and believed in me and knew that he could make more than just a one-hit wonder out of me, but make a career out of me because he believed in my talent. Some people said, oh, you sound too Broadway. Oh, it'll never work. Oh, you should be part of a group. And he said, no, I believe you as a solo artist. We can do it. So again, with helpful people, uh, my first album came out in 1988 called The Right Stuff. And I had a big hit on that called Dreamin'. I'll be dreaming, dreaming, which uh, was my first big ballad. And again, it was like, oh, well, she got lucky with Right Stuff. Oh, well, dreaming maybe number two, but we'll see if we're a sophomore album. And then Comfort Zone came out in 1991. And I had Comfort Zone was a, a hit, but also Say the Best for Last was a hit. And Save the Best for Last came to me as a demo after Barbara Streisand had passed and Bette Midler had passed. So again, it's like, okay, we'll give it to Vanessa Williams. Let's see. And nobody knew that it was going to be the mega hit that it was. Again, I know this theme is judging, but I've always been judged and I've always been, okay, well then let's see. And I should probably name my book. I have one book with my mom called You Have No Idea because 
people think they know the story and they really don't know the story. You have no idea what I'm about to tell you. But the next one should be, I never thought she could do that. Because (laughs) I never thought she could have a hit. I never thought she could be an actress. I never thought she could be on Broadway. I've always been, I don't want to say undervalued because I don't put a, a measure on what I'm worth. And I don't want to say dismissed because I was always in the game. But it was like, okay, let's give her a shot. And then, oh, we've had success. Well, let's see if it'll happen again. Oh, well, she's still in the game. And here I am at 59 years old, still being able to show up, be prepared, and bring the goods, which I know that I have. Looking back at the bit that we've discussed, where do you think the strength and the gumption comes from? Because I'm sure many people, you know, throughout lives, we come up against resistance, judgment, stress, pressure, and many people choose to, oh my God, it's too much. I just can't face that and diversify or revert back or just change their plans. But you seem to have, and you still do, this, I'm going to do it and I'm going to be the best at it, even with all of this stuff going on. I'd love to know, where do you feel that strength came from? It's distancing yourself from what the story is and what is really you. So that's kind of the mechanism that I use mentally to survive and also being flexible. Yes, I have goals in mind. Yes, I love to work, but I never know what's going to come next. And when I think I'm going to get this film and that's going to turn to this, then it doesn't happen or it gets canceled or verdant or whatever. There's always something that comes up that was like, okay, well, then I'll do some Broadway right now. Instead of panicking, which I know everyone wants to know what's the next thing, which is just fear of what is next. Am I going to be able to survive? It's just trusting like it'll happen. And I don't know, again, if that's being naive or having too much faith, but it always works out. The strength is always there to believe in myself, but also the strength is knowing that there's a way that it'll work out. So there's so much there I think anybody could take into their lives and benefit from. I think, firstly, not giving up, whether you're an entrepreneur or just being you in life. I think success... And whatever success looks like happens if you don't give up. Reinvent yourself. Keep Mm -hmm. going. I'm a huge believer. It's fine. Do your tears. Do that. Feel sorry for yourself for a moment. Yes. Go through it. Yes. But get up and go. And there's nothing wrong with having those moments of, oh my goodness, this is awful. I think you need to go through that slight grieving process. Process it. Go through it, as Mm -hmm. you say, but dust yourself off. Mm Got to keep going. And I think There's so much learning from hearing your story that somebody listening to this might be in the depths of some life stress that is going to go, do you know what? Okay, Mm -hmm. I've got to dust off those shoulders Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm going to keep going. So let's talk about Ugly Betty. Okay, (laughs) My face is just (laughs) lit up there. Wilhelmina Mm -hmm. as a character, just, I love her. It was one of those shows that, I couldn't wait to watch the next episode and what happens, what happens. And it wasn't just about Betty. It was about all the characters. But it was one of those shows that was, again, not considered a hit, that it was going to be well-watched, and that we'd even make it through the first 12 episodes. First, when we did the pilot, 
we were like, wow, this is really funny and cool, but it'll never get picked up because it's not like anything else on television. The first few months that we were filming, there was no breakfast. We had to bring our own food. We were treated like the ugly stepchild, as they say. I remember we got a Golden Globe nomination and I arranged to have like a waffle breakfast thing paid out of my own money just to say, congratulations, let's give some breakfast to the cast and crew. After you won the Golden Globe, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, we always loved you. You guys are great. <laughs> a complete, complete change of hearts. Again, you never know what a success is. You never know if you're undervalued again and you always have to prove it and people will find you. So we were like the underdogs. And I think that not only did we have that kind of, we're going to show them or we're just having fun, but our cast was so like Michael Urey, when we did the pilot, he was only supposed to be in that pilot. He was a guest star in the pilot. And he was so brilliant after that first scene that we did. We did the first scene was with me lying in the chaise lounge and he's giving me Botox in my office. And uh, I said, Mark, you can have the rest. And he said, okay, can I take some tape and pull up my eyebrows? So there's not a lot of left in the vial. I only have enough vial to do one eyebrow. And I was like, this guy is brilliant and creative and funny. And I love him. And I said to Silvio Orta, the creator said, you need to have him because they were going to have Wilhelmina just change every episode is a new assistant that she terrorized and they get fired. And, and that was going to be, you know, the trope of that idea. And I said, he's brilliant. So that's how Michael Yuri did a beautiful piece about how I, I helped him be a regular on Ugly Betty. I just saw him last week at the final show of POTUS on Broadway, and it was just great to, to be with him again. But it was one of those unique casts that everybody whose skill set was so broad that they could be funny, they could make you cry, they could be physical. They were great team players. It's almost like an ensemble you see in the West End where everybody is on the same level and ready to put on a show, as opposed to sometimes you walk on a set and you see somebody who is the star and won't engage with anybody. I mean, there's a famous television actor who I don't even know whether he's working right now, but in, refused to even look at your eyes. He'd do the whole scene on your forehead. Wow. Yeah. Great. You're just doing that for that millisecond. I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong? Exactly. <laughs> what do you Can want you in? imagine the whole like, Yeah. Every no, line the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you never know what the dynamic is, especially with television and film and who's getting paid what. So that made it such a wonderful, warm opportunity to play together. Mm. And I think you really see that we really like each other and we loved playing with each other. Okay. How have you generally throughout your career found the juggle of parenting? You said that, you know, they were really supportive of that, but I've got three children, you've got four. You never stop parenting them. And... I'm sure you might be able to, you know, appreciate that when they're younger, it's all consuming. But as they're older, the issues get bigger. I would say it's less physically time consuming, but more emotionally time consuming. How have you managed that with your own career? I'd just love to delve a little bit into the parenting I would totally agree. When they're young, you can pick them up and bring them anywhere. And I used to bring them all over the world. If I was on doing promotion for a new record, we travel everywhere. And they would see you know, Hong Kong and London and Germany and, and Australia and, and be able to travel with me and have those experience. And then when they start getting to school and then you're still traveling, it's, am I going to be there on 
when I would accept things, I would say, I can't do this because of this, or I need to be able to have this day free. So I accommodated my schedule for my kids' schedules. But when you talk about guilt, you know, my youngest, without the opportunities for homeschooling, there are times when I was in, you know, doing trip to Bountiful with Cicely Tyson in LA for a few months and then going to Boston after we had done Broadway. Sasha was in high school. I could have taken her out and homeschooled her, which would have been great because she would have been there with me and my ex-husband who was living in LA. But then the volleyball team needed her because she was the star on the volleyball team. And it's like weighing the, is the volleyball team more worth it to have her in, you know, to have her back home or do I pull her out of school? And I ended up keeping her home with my mom. My mom lives close by and and in retrospect, I should have probably taken her out of homeschool because who cares about the volleyball team? She needed to be there with me and my ex so she could be a part of a family unit and not feel abandoned. So yes, it never gets easy. No. <laughs> Every situation is completely different. Every child is completely different. Absolutely. Choosing the best skincare for your skin can be a minefield. There are so many high street brands promising the best results, the latest ingredients you need to be using, that magic product that will transform your skin. It can feel totally overwhelming. I know this because I've been in the skincare industry for over 20 years and heard this many times from thousands of people just like you, which is why I have launched Abigail's Atelier, your online clinical skincare shop. This is your space to access professional ranges tried and tested by an expert. You will only find products and brands I personally know and trust. There are easy search options to enable you to refine your main concerns to make the shopping experience a little simpler. You can also book a virtual consultation to talk through your skin and health concerns to get you on the right track with a personalised skin scription. To help start you on your better skin journey, use the code GLOW10 for 10% off your first order. You can find the shop on abigailjames.com. So we've talked about children what about grandchildren? Because I know that there's that next generation. <laughs> it's the best. My grandson is now eight months, Sunny. He's from my second daughter, who's uh, 33. And they live in New York City. So I would see them every Sunday after I finished my matinee at three o'clock. And I'd do a three o'clock matinee, finish at five, and then come spend time with Sunny every Sunday. And it's wonderful. You have so many memories of your children at that age. And then you, of course, compare like, well, when you were doing that, he was doing this. And, and it's it's just wonderful. And it's just the circle of life. Yeah. You know? And my mother's still alive at 82. So she's a great grand. She's loving it and keeps buying gifts for the baby. And it's just a blessing. It's yeah. just a blessing. There's a birthday coming up. Yes. So this is going to be the big six. Yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling about the aging process? I suppose what obviously is unique about you is you've had this life of, obviously in the spotlight, people have judged you for your look as well as your mm -hmm. skills. I'd love to know, do you feel almost extra pressure with the aging process or are you kind of good with it? I do feel pressure just because it's a digital world now. So there's no way of hiding 
you walk out of the street and anyone could take a picture and with no filter, you're really not hiding what you really look like and you're always going to be compared. So um, that's a given. But in the grand scheme of things, to be approaching 60 and still have a career that I'm in control of or that offers me so many different options to work is really extraordinary Mm -hmm. because it was not like that 25 years ago back in the 80s or when I was first in the business. And like really at 38, you were kind of done as a leading lady. And then you'd either the power exec or the lawyer with no backstory, no personal life. It was basically, you know, you were not sexual at all. You kind of had to give that all away. And it really wasn't until I think when I was watching Desperate Housewives at 40 and I could see a cast of women of a certain age that were still dynamic and sexy and intriguing and funny. And people were watching and it was a hit show. I was like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. that's the game changer. Yeah. So, and I think nowadays, of course, with all these screaming opportunities that you have, you see many women that are full characters that are 40, 50 plus. That makes me happy because I know that there's a lot of creating to do out there. And there's a lot of people that want to watch people that are the same age and be entertained by them. So that's a game changer. I've got a number of actresses as clients for face treatments. And over the years of varying ages and varying stages in their career, and some of them very well-known faces, and they've opened up individually that potentially there's a period in your career when you're cast as certain age brackets Mm -hmm. as a female. And maybe say, you know, the early 20s actually cast as a 30-year-old mum because they want the 30-year-old to look useful. (laughs) And there's an age bracket as an actress when you're turning up to things and it's like, "Mm, she looks too old to actually play her real age, (laughs) but she doesn't look old enough to play the, the older lady yet. And a few have opened up that there's this period in their career where they've almost had to go into voiceover work mm-hmm. or diversify because the looks, the aging process at right. that point isn't working for them getting their jobs. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that something that you've experienced at all? Luckily, I haven't because the one thing about theatre is that it's a wig, it's makeup, yeah. and it's singing and acting, and that's Lovely. When you're in front of the lens, that's a different story. But I've played so many women that were extra, so we say. Yeah. And I have no problem with being a villain. I remember when I was doing a trip to Battle with Cicely Tyson and, and Michael Wilson, our director, was talking and said, you know, you're fine with not being liked. I said, absolutely. <laughs> and he said, well, that's an asset because people that want to be liked won't do service to this particular character because they're going to change the intention, which the intention is to be feeling trapped and to be able to use that mechanism to be annoying because she can't help herself. When I did Ugly Betty, you know, she's not a likable person. She's got her eyes on the prize and she will take down anyone she wants to get there. And she doesn't care who she insults, but she'll insult them because, you know, she's got one particular goal in mind. So that's kind of been, I would say, my saving grace, because it doesn't matter what the age is, if they give me a well-written character, I'll go for it, no matter what I have to look like. And I've had so many Botox jokes, you know, from Ugly Betty, which I was in 42 when I accepted the role. 
I don't mind like that being part of, you know, a woman trying to stay doing anything to stay youthful. So that's part of, you know, what I've always been able to do. So we are sat in the hydrofacial flagship store. Yes, we are. <laughs> and you've kind of mentioned, you know, Botox. I would love to know, have you got any treatments or go-to things that you have found almost indispensable over the years even, or maybe let's say just kind of as the years have crept up, <laughs> yeah. that have become your, I need that, I really enjoy it, I see the result in that. I think I was kind of late to the Botox scene. I didn't start till I was 40. So, and the requirement for that is I need to be able to move my face because I'm an actress. So I don't want to be frozen. And I had to make sure that I went to derms or, or, or doctors that knew the anatomy of the face and allowed me to move my brows and have, you know, expression. So that's important in my business side, being in front of the camera for sure. But personally, and also in front of the camera, you know, we mentioned we're at Hydrofacial. I started doing Hydrofacial, which is its own unique brand and method and technology. It's been about, it was pre-pandemic, so it's been about three years that I started. Okay. And it's beyond your regular facial where you get, you know, extractions where people are taking their nails or their certain instruments and eliminating stuff from your pores and then doing the steam. This is a process where you are lying down, you've got this mechanism. It's like a little suction vacuum that goes over your face, which well moisturized and does the exfoliation. So it's getting all the dead skin off. Then there's an opportunity that it exfoliates and sucks out all the impurities. So it sounds like a little vacuum, but you really feel like, okay, this is getting everything out of my skin. And then there's an opportunity for you to pick like, Oh, I want the firming peptides. Oh, you know what? I want some brightening. Oh, I want some calming or, oh, I want some stuff for my, my lips and my eyes. So you can kind of customize what ingredients you want in your cocktail. And then that's the last layer that they put on your face that again, with this particular apparatus, this application, and you just feel like you are so hydrated and so boosted. You come out glowing mm. and it really makes you feel without having to go under the knife and do all these ridiculous treatments that cost tons of money. This is a wonderful way to, to feel useful and refreshed, but also look useful and refreshed. So I have been hooked on this for, you know, the past four years now. And have you swayed into any of the laser types of treatments? I have not done any laser. I'm nervous because I tend to uh, scar easily. Mm -hmm. And also being a woman of color, pigment wise, if I have a scar, it goes really dark. Yeah. So I, I'm a little nervous on the laser side, uh, especially around the face. Interestingly, so there's a new laser. It's called AeroLase, which you might like to have a look into. I'm not suggesting oh, yeah. that you need laser. <laughs> exactly. Honey, honey you, you need to laser. <laughs> <laughs> but it's FDA approved okay. for, I think, 34, 35 different skin conditions, but it's quite big in Nigeria. Huh. Yeah. Really? It, they are really shaking up the laser industry because traditionally a laser has, it's a big dinosaur of a machine. The guy who developed Aerolays. He's coming from a totally different skill set and mindset. I think his job was originally, he worked for NASA or something, and his job was to like minute lasers to get them out into space. 
Huh, okay. So A, you've got to get the technology so small, but B, it's got to be robust enough to survive out in space. So they're using an NDYAG laser. Part of the problem with pigment and mm-hmm. treating darker skin tones mm-hmm. is the heat that happens in the skin and whether that's with IPL or laser, mm-hmm. and that will cause pigmentation problems. It makes things worse. This because I think they're working on like a minute microsecond of a shot. There's no heat buildup in the skin. So for rejuvenation, for even... Firming the jawline. Firming the jawline, yeah. yeah. But also ingrown hairs. Oh, really? Yeah. And actually getting rid of the hair, but also maybe the bumps that come along with it. It is fascinating. It's quite big in America. I think there's going to be a shake-up of the laser industry. Ah. It's really fascinating. So like I said, I'm not suggesting you need to go and have it, (laughs) but it might be just one on your little radar to... Yeah, have a play with. Well, it's interesting because I know the technology is just leaping ahead oh, every, especially within the beauty field. Let's talk about skincare for a moment. Have you got any desert island products that you just can't travel without, or you've used for years, or something new? Any kind of skincare things that you love? I have a. I guess it's considered a BB cream, but it used to be called Perfect, and now it's called High Beautifully You. But it's a mattifier, it's a sunblocker, a BB quick that I use every day mm-hmm. uh, that just evens up my skin tone. I can go in the sun and not worry about skin damage. And uh, it's a great base for makeup if you want to build on top of that. So that's right now it's called High Beautiful You because he's sold the company and he's redoing it's the same product, but it's fantastic. I use that, all my girls use it, my mother uses it. You know, I'm always giving new tubes out to friends and turning people on to that. Flower Kissed is an organic brand. I use a skin brightener, which I absolutely love. And it's just like a white cream that comes out in a glass vial. And it just keeps me even after I cleanse. What's the brand called? Flower Kissed. I've not heard of that. K-I-S-T. Okay, I'm yeah, going to be Flower Kissed. There's skin brightener I absolutely love. I have a, it's called Aura. It's a skin oil. And it's got a bunch of different oils on it. And my friend Derek Rutledge is the one who developed it. I use that at nighttime and I love oil. You know, people say stay away from oil. I love skin oils. Yeah. And especially when they're, they feel great. They soak into your skin. I think they're even more hydrating than some creams. Mm -hmm. So I use that at nighttime. Do you get involved with any face massage? I do. So I use for my neck. I told you a lot. It's called Binoct, N-A-C-H-T. Okay. Binoct at night in German, but I think it's actually a German line, but they have a neck serum that I use every night and I just do upper moments. What I do do is called Zip Beauty, Z-I-I-P. I love Zip. Yeah. So I know Melanie, Simon. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Melanie, I met probably 10 years ago and uh, she used to do all these celebrity pre-Emmy Award yep. facials and she would use her- My like, current- and then she came out with a zip. I've been using zip for, I guess she's been out for about at least five years or so. Yeah. Love it. I love microcurrent as a technology. It's safe. It's effective. I actually did, I think I did an Instagram live with Melanie. Oh, good. Okay. And I did a, a YouTube video specifically on her zip device because there's loads of at-home gadgets you can get, but I genuinely rate yes. the zip device. Yeah. So wow, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do the 14 minutes. I think it's calling everything. And it does neck. I do lymphatic drainage. And yeah. I do the, the lift app. Yep. Yes. It's an app, app on your phone. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you program your zip, you press it, beep, beep, and then you put your gel on. And then there's a follow along guide where she, you can follow her to do the exact facial treatment. And she has jowls, she has eyes, brightening, plumping. There's a gold gel, there's a silver gel, and then there's the black platinum gel. That's yeah. probably my favorite secret. Okay, because I also figured that that is good for the regular, but if you've got an event that you need to put your makeup on and you know you need to look good, you know, for you, it might be on stage, for listeners, it might be a wedding or in a job interview, anything that you feel you just want to look on point. I think using something like the zip Mm -hmm. is a brilliant skin prep beforehand, yeah? Absolutely. So what are you currently working on, Vanessa? I'm actually in town doing, uh, I'm a judge on a drag queen singing competition show <laughs> called Queen of the Universe. It's on Paramount Plus. We had last season last year. So this is season two. And it's a hilarious, delightful competition show with drag queens from all over the world. Very sad. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm one of the judge myself. I'm Michelle Visage, Trixie Mattel, who is a drag queen, and Mel B has joined us this season. Graham Norton is the host. So this is Current Project. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned that you've had to diversify through your life. Mm -hmm. So I know plans change. What's next for Vanessa Williams? Well, I just came off Broadway, so possibly come to the West End to do the show that we just finished, POTUS. I was playing the First Lady, but it's a farce. It's a big, funny, physical, all-female farce of seven crazy, amazing women. So that might happen. I've got a couple other things in development for television that are in the queue. I've got a game show that's in the queue as well. I've got a record that I'm working on, which is also in the queue. So a lot of things that are coming up. And of course, my regular bread and butter is performing. I'm doing a week at 54 Below in New York City, which is a beautiful dinner club, which is under Studio 54 that I'm doing in December. I'm working with the Nashville Symphony Orchestra in October. So I've got my regular gigs, you know, concert and symphony gigs through the year. But those are the other things that between television and game show and Broadway and possible West End and recording, those are on my list to complete. (laughs) So busy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Vanessa, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. And I'm really looking forward to all of these new projects. Thank thank you so much. And good luck with your babies. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Knowing Me, Glowing You. I hope you enjoyed the chat as much as I did. If you'd like to learn a little more about what I do, you can always pop over to my website, abigailjames.com, where you can stay up to date with everything I'm up to. If you're into your skincare and well-being, I think you are really going to enjoy my latest book, The Glow Plan. It's a four-week plan to ageing well from the inside and out. If you enjoyed today's episode, it's really appreciated if you would subscribe and share the podcast with your friends and family. Thank you so much for listening. I hope today's episode might have given a moment of welcome distraction from your day and offered a glimmer of inspiration and happiness.